Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of the podcast. My name is Michael Sutton, and I am joined now and for the foreseeable future by my good friends, Aries Harper and Josh Martin. And I guess we can just jump right into introductions. As I said before, my name is Michael Sutton. I graduated from Ohio Wesleyan University in 2019 with a degree in comparative literature and a minor in theater. As a theater practitioner, I would consider myself mainly to be a dramaturg and director, but I have worked in many areas of the field and will likely continue to work in any area uh, with any aspect of theater that happens to catch my eye. My name is Aries Harper. I am also a graduate of Ohio Wesleyan University. There I was a theater and sociology anthropology double major. And so I call myself a theater artist, theater maker, working in many facets, um, probably mainly as a performer, director, scholar. And yeah. My name is Josh Martin. I also graduated just this past year from Ohio Wesleyan University. I am a theater artist and theater maker. I enjoy all sorts of facets of theater, which I think is where the, the title of theater artist is is probably the, the most comprehensive way to describe it. I have found myself doing mostly design work and direction work, and that's where I'm at least right now focusing most of my energy, which is good. I'm very, very fascinated by the theory behind theater, which is why I'm really excited that we're taking on this podcast. And I, so I guess jumping into kind of a, who we are as a group, I mean, obviously we all kind of met at Ohio Wesleyan. We had an opportunity to do our first full show together was Cloud Nine by Carol Churchill, directed by Aries Harper. And Michael Sutton was was the dramaturg on that and I was the scenic designer. So that I mean that was that was our first time working together in a big way, right? Yeah. I mean we had worked together we had worked together like many times before that, but like really with that one we were heading that production and heading that project. And so that allowed us to have a bit of creative control that we might not have had over other projects that we had worked on before. But I think we were definitely drawn to each other's work ethic, perspective and voice and artistry and just our sure will to work really hard. And, and dive into the creative world. There's something very unique about the three of us, I think, because we we hold a lot of value in both the theory and the practice. And I think we all have very different creative backgrounds. I guess I didn't say what I was studying at Ohio Wesleyan. I was a, a theater major with minors in film and media studies, sociology and anthropology, with concentration in, in peace and conflict studies. And I came from a background much more pursuing the ways that theater and, and the arts can be used in kind of a social justice format, right? How we can use the arts as a tool to have an impact on, on the social landscape, which I think it was where the Churchill Project was really neat. There is something that's really rewarding about being able to work with people who have very different backgrounds, which has been very exciting. Which, which, yeah, okay, so that kind of led us into where we are today, which has us in kind of an interesting, an interesting place where we're diving into starting a theater company, the Imperium Theater Company, and it's been a bit of a challenge. You know, COVID certainly has disrupted and devastated the not only the theater industry, but the arts industry in so many different ways. And it's been a very interesting process thus far. We have now been in the process of devising our own work and doing a fair amount of other kind of theory study as, as we venture into the post-grad life and have been able to do a lot of other artistic projects with other theater companies and other artists. 
in a number of places around the United States. I guess the way the way that I see it is I'm excited to dive into a place where where we can be able to kind of continue to learn and discover. I find that there are so many people who, I guess, dive into the idea of wanting to start a theater company and whatnot and end up getting lost somewhere along the road or, or, or feel like in some ways it's not possible. And I like the idea that, well, what if we try, right? What, what if now while we're young people, we give it a shot and, and see what we can make of it, see what relationships we can come up with and see what, what forms of creativity we can dive into. I guess what, what were the reasons that you guys kind of wanted to dive into pursuing theater as somewhat of a career? For me, I didn't come to college thinking that I would go into theater as a career. It was really probably one of our professors, but I had always come thinking it was like, okay, like I still want to do theater, but I didn't think that I could actually make it a career. And so I had planned to go into law. And so that was what I was telling people. I was like, I'll just go into law. It was what I did for a really long time in high school. And it was just kind of like, that's my thing. I'll just go into law. And then I got to undergrad and they gave me a scholarship for theater. Um, They were like, but you have to major. And so I was like, well, if you're going to pull my leg about it. And so I ended up majoring in theater as well as sociology and really just kind of fell in love with the craft and really figuring out that what I wanted to do with law, I can do with theater in just a better way that I felt worked better for me. And so I guess that's why I kind of figured out why I would go into theater as a career. What you might go It's pretty similar to my own. I came into OU having done no theater at all. The only reason I ever took a theater class was because I, I wasn't able to go to the summer orientation where people set up their schedules. So, of course, I showed up on campus. They made a schedule for me. They put me in the art of dance, which I was fine with. And then the teacher emailed us and was like, hey, bring close to dance then. And I said, mm, I didn't plan on doing that. I thought we were going to be like studying dance and, and, and how the practices changed. So I got out of that class very quickly uh, and got into the art of theater instead for my, my uh, necessary art credit. Uh, of course, Ohio was, it was a liberal arts college, so there were a number of things that we had to, to do outside of just doing theater. It wasn't just you do your major. Uh, there were, of course, a number of different classes we had to hit. And so often I credit Brad with doing a, a good enough job to keep me in the department uh, and inspiring me to do beginning acting. And from then on, I just kind of took it as a hobby. And I mostly did theater as a hobby as I did chess club and other things in high school. Uh, but around junior year, it had become so big a part of my school experience that we've gotten to the point where I kind of had to think, okay, well, am I going to keep dedicating so much time to this or am I going to go and actually you know, start to do things, writing essays, so on and so forth, for the thing I was actually majoring in? And so at that point, the things that I was doing was directly proportionate to how my future was going to end up. And I kind of had to make a decision where I was going to take a, whether I was going to take a reduced role in theater or not. And just thinking about what I wanted to do with a degree in Complet and the things that really interest me interested me about comparative literature, about literature from around the world, literature from different countries. I just felt like theater was doing something similar uh, and offered an opportunity to really change the way that people think about different cultures, different countries, because as, you know, as Americans, we have this very standard literature canon that you know doesn't involve literature from the Middle East. You're not going to hear about you know, concepts like the Arab Jew and, and the conflict that uh, those people go through between those two identities that are seen as conflicting and uh, essentially any other problem that is not an American problem or a Western problem. And I'm very interested in bringing that to other people just because it provides an opportunity for us to connect with people 
that we really only see from afar and that we only understand from afar. And I just figured, well, you know what, I wanted to do that with books and doing it with actors and acting and, and stage lights is just about the same thing, but not slightly on a bigger scale. And it really merged two things that I was discovering that I loved and I felt like it could reach a, a little bit deeper than, say, academia, where you just make these really heavy essays with words that you make up for words, <laughs> which you turn someone else's, <clears throat> turn some, some theoretician's name into an adjective, and then no one understands what you're talking about unless you get their book. I just felt like it reached a broader audience, and I want to reach a broad audience. I don't want to leave things that I think, I don't want to leave information about other cultures, other people, and their plight, and their struggles, and their victories and their happiness. I don't want to leave that floating in academia. Theater, I think, is a way to to make sure that that doesn't happen, to make sure that all kinds of communities, all kinds of people are able to see that and connect to it and mm-hmm. broaden their horizons and broaden their perspective. And so that's kind of what, what marked the transition to, all right, let's do theater as a career. Though I never majored in it because there were like two classes I didn't want to take uh, <laughs> and I knew I didn't have to. I knew I didn't have to, so I was like, eh. Do I really want to take other uh, a higher level tech class? You had to draw sketches. I always saw people scrambling to get their sketches done. And I was like, eh. <laughs> nah, I don't think so. But yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and of course, that's still present. That that sense of trying to pay attention to other cultures, connect with them, represent their problems to Western audiences. And I think that's always a little connected, even in, even in the show that we were working on or that we're still working on. Currently, The American Dream, which I'm sure will come up in this podcast at some point, mm. uh, since it dominated what we were doing for nine months or so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But that can always be for a later time. I like what you're saying, Michael, about the idea of theater kind of having an opportunity to kind of reach a broader audience. There was a big moment when I got to Ohio Wesleyan and started to study more of the theory and background of theater because, you know, I came with a pretty advanced tech background, um, you know, working both as a scenic designer, but also as projections designer and really building a lot of worlds and, and environments with which art can kind of take place. And I saw a lot of that very much, even at that time, as, you know, a way for us to kind of explore different ways that that we can use imagination or kind of our, our intellectual tools and emotional tools that we, we all have as human beings to be able to kind of encounter different work and kind of have different discussions. But I don't think I don't think I recognized how much of an impact theater really can have. I mean, I, I came in with a lot of these ideas that it's like, oh, we need this concept of theater for social change. Well, little did I know that that is something that has already existed in concept and form for hundreds of years. There are so many different artists and creators who have really been exploring what that looks like. Even today, Bawal's son, Julian Bawal, right, he, he still is actively working to be able to use uh, theater and theater practice as a device to be able to operate within a revolution, right? How do we, how do we give people the tools and autonomy to be able to craft the world that they want to live in and, and, and to be able to achieve the freedom of expression that at least we here in America say that, that you know, it is somewhat of a value that we want to partake in. And I like the idea, I was saying the other day that, you know, I, I read the introduction of one of David Mamet's books and 
you know, he, he definitely is a very, very controversial figure. And I don't agree with most of the things that he says. I think, I think he really strives to both oversimplify things, but also do things just kind of to push people's buttons, which you see a lot of people throughout theater history who have kind of done that. But he said something that was interesting that essentially was talking about the idea that there are times where even in a rehearsal space that's empty, you know, something can happen that's overwhelmingly captivating, even without a fully fleshed out design. And, you know, he, he, at least in, in phrasing around that point, he was trying to make some statements about theater as an entertainment form, which I don't, again, think that that is its most valuable use. But he said something about the fact that one of, one of the reasons why you can have something be more captivating in a rehearsal environment than it even maybe is on stage is partly because it allows us as the audience to come to it with imagination, right? There, there is something about, you know, our own ability to, to imagine and be creative that, that is partly what helps us evaluate and communicate with other people, uh, evaluate our own lives and, and the societies in which we live, which I think is, is kind of an interesting comment. And, and certainly one that I think makes me excited to continue in a, in, in a career and life of trying to pursue that, trying to pursue what theater can give to audiences and, and why it's meaningful. Yeah, and I think that's a great opportunity actually to transition into what we think this podcast will be. For one, I think it's just another creative endeavor. For us, of course, we are quarantined. Uh, like everyone else, we're not going around, we're not creating theater, at least in the traditional sense. And so we have been looking for different ways. How do you stay active? How do you stay creative? How do you continue to learn during this time period? And actually, you, Josh, brought up an idea at least similar to this a little while ago because you wanted to do YouTube videos, I remember. Mm-hmm. Got a lukewarm response, a lukewarm response from you. <laughs> Uh, because I'm not, I don't know, I just didn't know what I would do for YouTube videos that were somewhat educational. But when we came back around a few weeks later, and we're continuing to think, well, you know, what are we doing? And this is actually just post-transitioning away from American Dream and looking at, well, what do we want to do? Do we want to experiment ourselves with Zoom Theater? Uh, of course, that's something I'm project in it. To me, it was just a reminder uh, that we have a lot of things to, to say still, a lot of things to think about. So in many ways, I feel like this podcast will be almost a lab, right? What are we thinking about theater right now? What ideas are we running into in our studies? And what do we think of them and, and discussing them back and forth with each other the same way we do all the time? The yeah. same way it happens when I stop reading a book and, and call Aries to get his opinion on something or when we talk before and after company meeting. And I think there's a, a possibility that other people can come and listen and agree or disagree with us and uh, kind of take what we're thinking and, and help themselves define a little more clearly what they're thinking about theater. Essentially learn from the mistakes that we have made, the mistakes that we will make. Uh, I don't think any of us is a, a, a theater history guru. We don't know everything uh, about theater history, about theater theory, but that's never stopped us from having an opinion on it. <laughs> and of course, there, there's value in discussing those opinions and figuring out, all right, am I, do I understand this concept or not? Right? If it's ball backwards and forwards, yeah, maybe we understand it. If it's our toe, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, but We'll get but yeah, there, we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> Will we? He's, talk, yeah, he's talking about a lot of weird things. Vibrations through the mind. I don't know what he means. Uh, I like so that. <laughs> and I'm glad that you like it. I don't dislike it at all. But what does it mean? 
what am I supposed to do with that? How do I write that down? How do I know when the vibrations occur? Is it just a feeling? <laughs> it's, it's probably just a feeling. Someone might say it's just a feeling. And so, you know, when you have it's it. A, it's a transcendence. It's transcendental. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's okay. So if I think it probably has a lot to do with, we know he was on a lot of drugs and he was, he was very troubled. But if like you study energy and chakras and things like that, you recognize that everything kind of vibrates at a specific frequency. So if he's relating to that type of vi- vibrations of the mind and how we connect with other people through that energetic vibrations, then yeah, I can, I can see that. At, at the same time though, to what extent is that, is that valuable to dive into as some form of technique, right? I think, I think there, there are ways that Okay, as a descriptor, it's fine. But if you're kind of communicating this in a format to which you're you're partly looking at what theater you have found to be impactful or, or what new insights you're bringing to the table, just kind mm-hmm. of communicating, oh, you know, the, something can be impactful when it's vibrating in all of these different planes. Well, to me, that's that's really getting to a type of technique that is more suggesting a subjective experience, you know, where, you know, it's you know, oh, you'll just feel it when you do it right. Which there's an extent to which, yeah, sometimes something hits you. And no, but, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that's it. Well, but I, you know, more, I, I think it would be more intriguing to say, you know, use your own kind of human devices, right? The things that, that you have developed as, as your ability to, to understand your, your own kind of workings of your body and, and the way other people react to things and things like that. I mean, there are certain ways to which, yes, we can have possibly some of that, you know, transcendental experience, I suppose, when we connect with another person, right? That's, that's something that, that I think is kind of broadly shared. But I kind of wonder if, you know, him saying that is just a way to, to sound almost like he's smarter than the rest of us and 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 can and can live in that and so find us just kind of pondering something that maybe we find somewhat controversial. Yes, but it also I still feel like it is drawing attention to the fact that we ignite the energy between other people and that's where we connect, like in the space and in the energy between mm-hmm. other people. Whether we want to call it a vibration or whether we want to call it imagination or I mean, how is it any different than Stanislavski saying move around the space as if you're, you know, the magic if thinking as if you're a leaf falling from a tree right, and talking he, about he vibrational. In, I was, I was just going to say he, he, he unpacks that a whole lot more. He goes into the fact that at least at that time in his life, right. Imagination was a way that he felt people could be able to get at this idea of, of emotion from doing. Yes. But, uh, but if we're talking about the technique thing, there's plenty of other things that people do for technique that to the outside world or to at face value seems this is crazy. But depending on the individual person, it might have a lot of impact. Arto really is an intriguing character. Uh, he is. Uh, I'm certainly not saying he's not saying nothing. Obviously, he has ideas on how to do things, even physically. Gesture is very big to him. Uh, sound is very important. It's not quite in a construction that we typically think of it. Less blocking mm-hmm. and music and and text, right, less the words more how do you use these things to create a feeling, which is all good and fine, because then you're going through this book and you're happy-go-lucky, oh, I'm learning, how do I apply this? Well, some things may seem similar to uh, Grotowski uh, and his ideas, and then he starts talking about universal magnetism, and that's when I skip to the bottom of the section. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, because I because I, under, I understand what he's getting at, right? I understand what he's, at least I feel like I understand what he's getting at, and I do need to get through the book, so I don't have to, <laughs> I feel like once you start talking about universal magnetism, 
operations through the mind, that's when I can start skimming. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> of course, but of course, everything's multiple reads. So on, on, the, on the second read back around, we'll, we'll pay attention uh, to the vibrations. We'll pay a little more attention. Don't make it sound like I just started skipping everything. But after a while, <laughs> I just started getting so confused. I was like, Something, something's got to go for now. Okay. For, the, for the sake of learning, I got to put this to the side and we'll come back around. Uh, and we will. We might not, but we will. I do like um, that idea that, you know, it's what you mentioned the, the, the YouTube video concept. You know, there's an extent to which on, on the technical side of things, there are a lot of kind of skill based endeavors that that I feel like I could communicate pretty effectively as kind of how to's in some ways. But but I think there was kind of an important discovery when we were having that conversation, which really was how, you know, one of the things that really connects us is the fact that we are learners and are very excited by the prospect of of learning for the rest of our lives. And in some ways. This podcast is kind of an, a unique format simply because we can invite people as well, which I really like. And right, how can how can we engage with people through our efforts of wanting to continue to learn, which in some ways, I, I mean, we can do with a video, too. But but at least in 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 the context of quarantine, the, that face to face meeting is is something that's very difficult. Oh, I suppose we should we should have clarified like where we're all right now, like where we all are. Cause I'm I'm in North Carolina right now. I'm in Columbus, Ohio. And I'm down, down, way down in Florida, <laughs> uh, a hot spot currently. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But you don't have a Florida accent, though. I don't know what a Florida accent is. Yeah, I don't know what that means. Maybe like, like Florida, like I'm from slang. Florida. Yeah, like a Florida accent, like Florida. Uh, I'm one of Florida boys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, I don't know. I don't know about that, but uh. No, no, I don't. I don't have any type of accent. Florida's weird. And like the, way, the reason I call that slang is just because, like, I don't know, it's more about what the, the words you say are, like the little individual pieces of slang that are particularly Florida versus like a Southern accent, mm-hmm. which I would consider to like affect every word you say. There's no Southern mm-hmm. accents in Florida. There are Southern accents in Florida, but like, we're not the South South. <laughs> we're just kind of Southern. No, uh, y'all Cuba. Southern most safe, but we're not the, the South South. Cuba? Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Have you been to Miami? Miami is low Cuba. Okay. Mm-hmm. No, I've never been to Miami. Yeah. I don't like beaches, so I don't. There's not really a reason for me to go. Which is such a weird thing. I don't like beaches, and I don't. I don't even like roller coasters. So why am I in Florida? I'm just hot. <laughs> I get none of the benefits. I'm just hot, and now it's coronavirus hotspot. So it's just there's no reason for me to be here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here I am. Uh, but yeah. Yes, so poetic. Also, yeah, uh, the fact that we're delocalized, like a delocalized theater company, of course, is very interesting. Maybe a potential topic in the future. It's not something we ponder just because while well, Aries and I did graduate the same year, we did have to wait a year for Josh. Mm-hmm. So we were kind of already used to that notion of, all right, we have a year to, to kind of do other things, but also to work on the company from afar. It's certainly an interesting experience as you try and create work together to be so far away, something like this is probably actually the easiest. Because yeah. you know, just load up whatever uh, group meet app website you want. Mm-hmm. Just kind of talk about other but, but doing things like writing plays or even research, very, very different, especially with our last time we were all together in, in college, where we could just go down the gym and talk to each other whenever we wanted to. Always have that kind of connection at any point in time. And now, no. I don't often make a decision do I wait for the meeting? Do I call a little different than the class, but we're certainly we've done it. We will be doing it for as long as we are uh, mm-hmm. trapped inside, whether that's by 
government mandate just common sense. <laughs> yep. As Josh said, a, a great excuse bother our professors. Uh, <laughs> I'm definitely sometimes like, ooh, should I ask Ed about this? Should I ask Brad about this? Or should I just do it myself? They have other things to do. But now, you just say, hey, you want to be on the podcast? <laughs> That's right. When there's, there's, there's something to be said, too, for for during this kind of COVID time, you know, as, as much as we are kind of finding some of our individualized opportunities to, to continue to create and, and think about art during this time. I, I also think I've been recognizing the fact that there are so many particularly young artists who given this moment where everything else has shut down, they are not really finding opportunities for how can I create and I think that's interesting, right? There, there's an element to which I think we have come to rely on other institutions to be able to create artistic opportunities that we can engage in. And I like the idea that we can be able to think of and develop and, and possibly even look at the theory behind what does it mean to both value this idea of collaborative efforts, but encourage the artists, particularly young and emerging artists, to be able to, you know, look at challenges as opportunity versus obstacle. There are so many people recently who have had this conversation with me about the idea that theater or art is kind of a product of obstacle. And I find myself really disagreeing with that because... Yes, I can understand that, particularly if you look back at history, there are so many important theatrical things that have either coincided with the same time or been direct results and products of a lot of really, really challenging times, not only in the United States, but all over the world. And what I think could be going on is this idea that particularly artists who I believe, I, I don't know if I'd say like they're trained to look for other kind of creative solutions or things like that, but there's there's a different mindset, I think, that a person who kind of claims the title of artist can approach a challenge. And I think I think really what they're doing is carving out some sort of opportunity that other people don't necessarily see, which is a concept that's very much accepted in the entrepreneurial area. But, but I, I find it interesting that we dwell on obstacle as a big driving force. And I worry about that a little bit because if we're just practiced at finding the obstacles and dwelling on the obstacles and, and letting that be the main drive to create, you know, what does that actually do for your ability to continue to work on things in a healthy way? And this time of COVID, I think, has been interesting because it's something that almost we're overwhelmed with the obstacle. And it has, I don't know if it's created such challenge so that you know, people feel almost they can't dive into this idea of finding the opportunity within the obstacle. Well, and I guess we are finding other forms of being able to create, right? Things like TikTok, I mean, is, is kind of a prime example of people having different creative ways that they can be impactful or innovative or kind of using it as a bit of a prototyping area. But I still maintain that TikTok as a platform is partly what is encouraging and supporting that behavior, right? If there weren't these platforms, would people still continue to be creating? Yes. So you're saying that you feel like people without conventional structures in place, people don't naturally just express themselves through theater or finding their own means to express themselves. Yeah. And and in some ways, I think they're, they're discouraged to do so (laughs) because there isn't a lot of training development for basically allowing young people, young artists, et cetera, to generate their own sense of creative autonomy, right? Their, mm-hmm. their own sense of kind of 
creative drive that isn't predicated on somebody else basically giving them permission to create. Right there, uh, you know, a lot of people will continue in, you know, arts education because in some ways the, the big thing about becoming a part of any sort of program that, that gives you opportunities cr to create is partly that, that you're expected to and you're given license and resources to. I think there's a necessary friction needed to express art at times. Um, and again, and the varying levels of that friction or obstacles, whatever you want to call it, because I think some really just dealing with the full expression or the full mode of someone as a human, which deals with people dealing with problems, solving them, failing over and over and over again. And so I understand the necessity of obstacles or friction, whatever you want to call it. But I don't agree with the idea that of just completely not giving anyone resources or creating all these obstacles for artists simply because, well, with people who are saying, well, you do your best work with no money or no funding. And it's like, well, we've had to for a really long time. Like there are plenty of places. Yes, you can get grant funding, but you, there is far and few who actually get the grants because there's so many people who will apply and who don't get it, you know, who are just as good artists and who want to create just as good material. And I do think that there are tons of people who want to create material. But like you said, I don't they might not have the resources or they're discouraged too. So like, I don't necessarily know if it's a people problem and more of like a system structural problem, in my opinion. I think there's an extent to which th there are elements that are both. The NEA definitely changed the way that they deliver grants to individual artists particularly with the, the NEA4. And I think the, the idea of distributing more of the funds through local arts councils and, and state arts councils is kind of an interesting idea. A lot of the system does appear to be set up to not work with the emerging artist, but rather to support the established artist, which I don't think is always helpful. And I mean, even, even, the, even the structure of grant writing or having a grants for artists caters to a very specific type of artist. Because you know, mm -hmm. if you're not taught how to write a grant for your art or taught to express your art in a marketing type way mm -hmm. to present it to a board, to present it to a council, to present it in a way that's like, oh, have someone come on and fund this so that it can become something else. That's not to say that there are no other artists out there or and you might have plenty of artists who aren't applying for grants because they don't know. They just don't. They're not familiar with that structure and they don't know how to. Mm -hmm. They're never taught how structurally. It's always I'll give you what you want, quote unquote, as long as you do what I want, which is abide by my rules, follow my structure, and then praise me after I give you all this money. Yeah, you're, you're constantly in the cycle of, of proving that your art is worth it. And, and particularly in a phase where really some of the reward is trying and failing, right? We do learn so much through the, the kind of fundamental structure of failure, which, right, even the word failure doesn't always conjure up the idea that there is reward that does accompany it. But the idea that you're kind of always striving for this, this idea of, you know, proving your, your art's worth, which is fine. But I think there's, there's so much in the discovery process that, that does end up being things that, that go by the wayside or, or things that maybe you, you don't feel like are, are the best ways that you can kind of express what you're going for in the project, but you haven't quite come up with the right way. You know, the, the fact that you have kind of somebody looking over your shoulder and saying, well, that was, that's not there yet. It's like, I know, thank you. You know, so are, are there other discovery grants or, or things like that could exist out there? Right, because I think once you develop relationships, particularly with private funders, right, there are a lot of organizations who do support artists, but it, it really is focusing on this idea of a product rather than a process. 
which I think yes. is against the way that many artists and theater makers value creating. Yes. I think the moment it becomes more about the product and not the process, it loses its essence for me at least because it just becomes commercialized or capitalized. And I don't like it. Not my thing. What do you think, Michael? Sorry, I had to laugh because this is, these are what we have in our regular talks. The long pauses and all right, songs that's something I would think about and digest it, but can't always do that for a podcast. Just yeah, no. for the for the listeners. I mean, you both made interesting points. You did kind of stray from where I thought it was going because I thought we were just like, talking about people making theater now in the pandemic. And you kind of talked about grants and things like that, which was a little separate. I do want to say, though, just for that thought of, you know, what kind of theater are you making in a situation like this? And it does somewhat apply to, you know, the theater you make when you don't have access to a large space, a building with, with lighting and sound and space to create a large set of, you know, uh, outside of a traditional space. And it does occur to me that you also kind of have to think about just what do people enjoy. I feel like that also has to, to take a part to have some kind of a stake in it because in a situation like we're in now, someone who may consider themselves, you know, an actor really doesn't have the old opportunity that they used to have to be in a large theater space with their fellow actors where they can interact in person, play around with the set, interact with the people on the stage, create something on the stage. And so I think if they're not jumping to do, excuse me, theater, they're not jumping to do some theater because it's not enjoyable to them. I don't think there's much to say about that because I'm not going to say, well, create theater for the sake of creating theater, create something for the sake of pushing the form forward if you don't enjoy it. So I've never done theater in the way it seems to us now, which is Zoom theater. Hopefully, theaters aren't creating theater in the old way during the pandemic, so I think that's just about the only way that you can make it, or at best, I think there are some places trying to do it with social distancing. I'm not sure how that works. I've never seen it before. But again, my main point being, if the way you understand theater, if the way you enjoy theater is based upon kind of the conventions of, of how we typically do it, and if you don't enjoy the new format of it, that we've made out of necessity. Well, I don't think it's quitting if you don't engage with it. I think you're just not doing something you don't enjoy, which I think is perfectly fine. Uh, especially when, you know, thinking of young people, what are young people doing? What are college students and high schoolers doing who really just kind of come in and act in musicals or act in plays? Again, I'll say I didn't do theater in high school, so I don't know much about the potential opportunities for them to direct or things like that. Because uh, I feel like those people who are playing around with the film or directors, people who you know study different types and forms of performance, I think they're the most likely to be ready to, all right, here's this new form, let's play with it, can we make something that's new and interesting? But if what you do in theater is, you come in and you say, all right, I'm here to act, because that's what I enjoy, I'm here to manage, I'm here to construct the set, I'm here to do lighting design, uh, then yeah, the new forms that we have just be unenjoyable. Uh, and if that's what, there are, what they are, it's not so wild to me that people aren't trying all these new and different things to try and create something that is enjoyable in place of it. And, and specifically, I would say that's even more because it, the, the sense isn't that we'll be here forever. Right? If, if not all theater just ceased to exist in the way that we know it on a conventional stage, then it might be different. Mm. Then you might find more people going out to try different things but in the situation that we're in now especially as as we've kind of talked about you know are the ways in which we're finding 
to do theater through things like Zoom. Are they even theater? You know, there, there's still discussion to be had there. How do you make them more theater? Uh, can they ever be more theater? Do we just go ever and ever closer to it being film? I don't know. But I would never look at a theater person and say, well, why don't you just do film? So I feel like it's not quite the same situation as saying, okay, well, create theater, but without the big budget. Right? Mm-hmm. Create theater without the space. Where then you're saying, okay, can I find a bar? That'll let me do it. Can I find, can I do it in my living room? Can I find uh, uh, a space outside where I can do it? I feel like that's different because it's it's much closer to being the same, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's much closer to being uh, a similar experience versus being a drastically different experience, like the situation we're in right now. And that way it just makes a lot of sense to me why people, some people are essentially kind of waiting it out. Mm-hmm. It kind of seems like all you can do is, is wait it out or, or wait for in some situations, an opportunity. I'm sure there are plenty of actors who are keeping their eye open, who's doing something, Zoom theater. Yeah. You know, who's creating something, who's playing a performance, who's finding a way to make it enjoyable again, if they don't find it enjoyable now in order to do more. But yeah, um, I think it's a little bit different. Or I think it's kind of dependent upon your background, upon what creating art means to you, what you specifically are interested in and what you do. That determines, you know, are you going to go out and really try and play with the form and manipulate the form to find something mm-hmm. uh, new and exciting to do. You know, a month ago, we closed on what was one of the first in-person remote theatrical events here in Raleigh. And I was commissioned to create a shadow puppetry presentation of this new devised work that, you know, we, we were collaborating with a writer who was working from New York, sound designer who's out in California. And a number of us were figuring out how, how we safely work here. And there were lots of challenges. We had the audience in the parking lot and had to think of, you know, what are different ways to to get to an audience. And so our case, you know, the the piece that we ended up devising was was one in which the, the protagonist character was talking about his experience of, of losing his sister and trying to find her. And he was a podcaster. And so in there, it, it kind of worked that we were transmitting the audio into people's cars and people were able to still consume it in a communal environment. And yet they were still very individually secluded, which was kind of interesting. There, there were, there were lots of things about that project that were frustrating because it, it almost felt like everything that we were doing was a risk, right? You have to really depend on the producer or whoever the person who is managing the venue. You know, you have to you have to depend that anybody else who they're letting in the space is being held to the same strict requirements of, of wearing masks or cleaning the space and, and, and things like that. So there's there's a risk there that I think is very problematic. There's also something about the fact that most of the choices that we had to make really were thinking about to what degree are we trying to replicate what we would conventionally do and to what extent are we almost abstracting the form by making these choices that we wouldn't typically. And that was strange and certainly was a very different way to engage in art creation. And yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily think that's something that is for everyone, but I, I, I also don't necessarily think that that art will necessarily go back to just being what it was. In some ways, it's kind of a refreshing opportunity to, to think, oh, we, you know, we have codified all of these things that don't necessarily need to be the ways that a show is typically approached, which is kind of interesting. And, and I hope that particularly a lot of emerging artists in these spaces and certainly established artists as well can look at this time as somewhat of an opportunity. 
if nothing else, to be able to just give some thought to what are the conventions that we typically have and, and is it worthwhile to continue doing what we almost get into our head that everybody else is doing or that everybody else literally is doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think it'll be the same. I don't think it can be the same, which is this just the same thing with our natural world as well. Like, well, we'll probably never go back to how it was before COVID and during this time is really trying to figure out what are the new ways in which we can interact, create, live, survive. It's a huge, it's a really big process. Like it's process time right now, really dissecting what are the new processes that is needed and that will be most effective. And so I think as much as I don't like Zoom theater, I think Zoom theater is a great research tool right now just because plenty of people are still trying to get back to what is it about live theater that makes it so different from film and zoom it's like not really film and it's not really theater i think michael said the best thing about it was that it was closer to like a podcast or like a reader's theater type thing because that's more what it feels like than anything else or at least that's what it's felt like in the in the things that we've seen thus far yeah but even but i mean even the things that i do like that are considered zoom theater which have more editing are much more sharp and precise seem more like tiktoks and they use a lot of techniques from tiktok because a lot of kids can use that and they know how to do that editing because it's simple and it's straightforward for them and so even with that yeah it's weird it's a great time to figure out what you like about theater mm-hmm. uh-huh. actually is pretty important because i feel like even through four years of college i feel like i haven't thought about what is theater to me more than when i graduated and I didn't have, no, yeah, to be fair, obviously, it's different when you have to go to class and they say, read this book. And it's like, okay, this is really interesting. And I have like three assignments and a paper to do. So you just kind of don't really have those opportunities. It feels like during the school year to like think about every page a little more clearly. Whereas today, I mean, I could go, I can read six pages of show because that's the speed at which I can process things and figure it out and have time to let me stop and go off on a tangent and think about it compare it to what I already know. Or is it in school where you just kind of have to get things done? That's a great opportunity to think about things. Better. And again, wrapping back around, I mean, that's what, that's what the podcast is for. Things, discussing them, and, you know, hopefully, things like, you know, I mean, it could, as far as I would want, I'll probably come on to kind of talk about it, more perspectives on what theater is and what it should be, as well as just experiences with it, and more people to bounce off of. Uh, so I don't know when that episode will come but i'm sure i'm sure it's coming at some point the same way i don't know what next week's episode will be i didn't think we would go over as much as we did today when we were planning this episode out i thought it would just kind of end up being uh talk about possibilities and we'd say oh we can invite this person and this person who are important to us and have interesting perspectives to us but uh, we actually got to dive uh, a little bit deep into some things we have some things for ourselves to think about hopefully we've created some things for a listener to think about and to, to comment on. We do have a couple different forms of social media that exist. I can't say much about them other than that. They just kind of exist for now. They're not super in use, but they do exist. We do have a Twitter. Twitter might be the, the easiest, simplest way to contact us. Yeah, I think um, that would be too. And we have a lot of social media right now that kind of exists, but not really. <laughs> They're just not active. Yeah, well, they haven't had a reason to be active yet. We thought they would be active for when our show was done. And again, we'll probably talk about that at some point. The American Dream, which we hope to take to some fringe festivals, but obviously that's not an option anymore. And so that's when those... Yeah, because they all got shut down. Are really supposed to, yeah, really supposed to come through. But now we have a new reason to do so. 
So you can find us at Imperium Podcast on Twitter. That's I-M-P-E-R-I-U-M Podcast. Give us your feedback. Are there things that uh, you're interested in hearing about? Topics that you're interested in us discussing? I think we're excited to bring in a couple of the people that we already have lined up on the docket to participate in this show. And we'll just see what topics we get to. It should be fun. And so again, on Twitter is a great place for you to respond to the episode. Start a conversation with us. And with that, we'll bring this show to a close and we'll be back next week talking about something.